All right, so let's, uh, you want to bring us in? Yeah, I can do it. I know you can, I just didn't know if you would. <laughs> All right, are we ready? Uh, Hang on, it closes. I'm being quiet. Closes you don't know how long that's going to last, so you better bring it in quick. <laughs> here we go. All right, here we go. <clears throat> And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spataro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. My name is Scott Gardner and joining me as always is my very good pal, Paul Spataro. Hey. What's up, man? Uh, not too much, you know. It's, we got the usual, uh, we got to pretend like we're just starting to talk after we've been on with each <laughs> other for an hour or so. <laughs> I already know what's up with you, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing anybody else wants to know. If anybody else wants right. to know know what's going on, all I could tell them is get off my freaking lawn. They should have been here. If they wanted to know earlier, then they should have been here earlier. Yeah, That's, yeah there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Bill is on assignment, and by us on assignment, I mean he's too lazy to get off his ass from joining the show. No, you know what? Dr. Bill <laughs> is literally on assignment. Dr. Bill is not with us tonight, and he was going to be with us, but isn't because he's doing work. For his job. Oh, that's that's right. So yes. Bill is literally yes. on assignment tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Can't fault a man for trying to keep a job. Yes, that is that is very yeah, true. That no, is. we miss you. We miss you, Bill. We wish you were here, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. Not that especially, he's a book, but still. <laughs> especially when, we, when we're doing a Star Trek book and Bill could uh, go on and on and on like he did with Khan. Oh, my God. Oh, maybe it's a good thing he's not here. <laughs> Yes, bringing the trek tonight. I'm I'm looking forward to talking about this one because this uh, this is an interesting bag here. To steal your terminology, this is a humdinger. Yeah, it is a humdinger. Yes, it is. And this one comes to us thank thanks to the uh, generosity of Kirk Greenfield, who sent me a copy of issue one of Star Trek: Harlan Ellison's The City on the Edge of Forever original teleplay comic book by IDW. I, I had heard that this was coming out. I didn't realize that it was already out. And uh, it's interesting because I'm a big fan of uh, the work that uh, the IDW has been doing with Star Trek. I'd, I have not read it all, but what I have read of their, uh, their Star Trek, I've really enjoyed because they, they seem to have a really good handle on it, especially the classic stuff. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, the, the City on the Edge of Forever is really interesting because... It's generally credited with being the best Star Trek episode. Uh, I, I would say, in my opinion, I don't, I don't know exactly where it would land, but it would definitely be among the best. I don't mm -hmm. know if I would mate rank it as number one. I would say certainly in the top ten. There's no question at all in my mind, and that's counting all of the Star Trek series. For me personally, it's it's always been my favorite episode. Now, you know, Chris Honeywell and I and 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 other friends are you know you remember Uncle Randy from from mm -hmm. two shows. You know, we've always we've long jokingly said that uh, that um, the enemy uh, the enemy within is our favorite episode. I don't know how serious those guys are about it. I say that kind of tongue in cheek because I love that episode, but it's a different kind of love. I love that one because that one is the quintessential cheesy Star Trek episode because it's super friggin' cheesy. I mean, it's a good episode. Don't get me wrong, but. I like it because it's just it's just Shatner going crazy and as Kirk and just really hamming it up and it's it's just fun. But if I if I was to pick like what do I think like if I had to represent Star Trek to somebody that had never seen Star Trek like why is this such a thing? This would be the episode I would I would pick out because I think this has all the the classic elements of Star Trek. 
uh, I, I just think it's a fantastic episode. And, and I was really glad to hear you say, you know, that you, you know, that you'd heard, uh, a lot that this one's lauded as, you know, the best one. I've heard that too, but it seems, I, I don't know where it stands today in the rankings, but it seems like for, at least for a time, like when Star Trek was really at its apex of popularity, it seemed like what I always was hearing was trouble with tribbles. I gotta be honest with you, I've never been that big a fan of that. Yeah, I know that's not one of your big favorites. It's it's definitely a a favorite of mine. It is not my favorite absolute favorite episode. This one definitely ranks higher than that. Right, but I, I found that one to be more uh, enjoyable because uh, you know reading the making of Star Trek book and everything. Right, just just made it more interesting and made it you know, and and it is a fun episode. So, but I I, I think it's in the grand scheme of things, it's much more light and fluffy than this episode. This episode has you know has depth to it, has weight to it. Exactly, and that that makes and it's you know it's it's grounded in in true science fiction. So there's there's a lot of things. I, I'm trying to think since you mentioned it, and it's not something I had really given a lot of thought to, but I'm trying to think. If I was dealing with somebody who had never seen Star Trek, is this the episode I would show them to ask, you know, to say, do you like this or not? Uh, one of the reasons I might not is because there's so many episodes that don't live up to this level. And if I made somebody think this is what the show is like <laughs> all the time, they would be disappointed, right. you know, seeing the ones that, that don't live up to this level. But I'm not sure. I mean, you know, the go-to thing is always, I think, for everybody is, oh, I'll get them to sit down and watch either The Wrath of Khan or The Voyage Home, depending on who you're dealing yes. with. Yes, I think but, that's a mistake, too, honestly. But yeah, well, I think, and I think what happens then is somebody gets into the movie mode, but they're not into the show. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, it's... I, I, I'm dealing with that now, and, and by dealing with it, I mean I'm actually enjoying dealing with it. Uh, Melissa's boyfriend has seen all the Star Trek movies, but he hasn't watched the series. He's seen the occasional episode, but he hasn't watched it. So I said, I don't know if I could let you date my daughter anymore. <laughs> uh, and, and, and now uh, he, he's agreed that when, when he comes over here, we're going to watch Star Trek episodes until he's seen the entire series. That's he's very, awesome. very, very open to things like this. He's, he's, you know, he's very into movies and TV and everything. So that's that's easy enough to get him on board for. But I'm curious with somebody like him who is open-minded about it, where he's ultimately going to fall once he has watched the series. Right. And it's you know it's going to be interesting to see. So far, you know, we all we watched was, uh, uh, well, I can't think of it, the salt creature. Uh, oh. Um... Which oh is, God! What is the name of that one? Um, oh my God! My brain's just—this <laughs> is, is a conversation we were having before we started recording. But uh, so, file not found. <laughs> we, <laughs> my brain we, just went to a blue screen. Yeah, I, I we, we watched that name. one because that's technically the first episode, right? And uh, and we're going to work our way through. We're we're, we're going to do them in uh, in the order that they aired. What the hell is the really? episode? Oh, that's a... All right. Well, I mean, that's, that's a novel. You know what? I got my compendium sitting right here. God damn it. Now I got to dig this thing out because that's going to make me nuts. I got to know what the name of that is. And, and I'm going to try Can and... Can he remember before the yeah, book that's, tells that's, him? that's what I'm trying to oh, do. Oh, God. What is the name of that episode? It's the very first one with the yeah, sun. Uh, it. My God. Uh, oh, my God. This is horrible. If it's is, it's not Nancy. If it was Nancy, could I do this? Uh... <laughs> Right, yeah, I know. I can <laughs> quote the episode. I just can't think of the name of the the name of the episode. Oh my god, what is the name of that thing? Uh, I'm gonna end up getting to it in the year in the book before. Oh, they're listing the cage is the first episode. Well, that's the the first, obviously the first uh, pilot. My God, there are so many episodes. There are so much. Uh, information here on just on that first episode before you actually get to oh for god's sake i mean then they got well, no i think the book is not in is not in release order it's in episode order you know episode number order all right the man trap man trap yes jesus christ why couldn't i think of that it's yeah, the, the same book. reason i couldn't we're old and we're feeble-minded yep I'm looking at the Star Trek compendium, and I just realized, yeah, they're they're an episode number because then after, 
the cage they do uh, one element has gone before and then Corbin maneuver. So that one's actually what like episode six, I think, because isn't that in production order? Yes, yeah, something yes, like that. Yeah, it's right after Enemy Within. Yep, Man Trap. That's it. God, I could not think of that. Yeah, and I, I don't remember what the reasoning was that they thought this would be the most viewer friendly to introduce the general public to the series. I know, for whatever yeah. reason they came up with it. And and because Netflix Netflix does have the cage first, but because Netflix otherwise has this as the first one, we decided we're gonna go with it in Netflix order, but skip over the cage for now. See, I don't. I've never really even liked that episode, to be honest with you. I mean, it has its moments. It, it definitely has its moments. Is is this uh, is this Star Trek Monthly Monday? Uh, oh no, no, it's back to the bits. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know that you and I have ever really talked all that much Star Trek. I mean, you know, other than you know when I when I guessed it on uh, on the DS9 show. Well, we did play Star once. Trek trivia, which is that's supposed true. To, that's true. It, it is supposed to show up as an episode of. Uh, of Star Trek Monthly Monday, Chris has the the, the audio of, of it and was supposed to post it. Did at that some never point. come up? Yeah, I don't think he ever posted it. <laughs> oh, good lord! But he he had Somewhere asked me he had a... asked me a while ago, uh, you know, did, you know that he had misplaced the, uh, the the recording, and I gave him another copy of it, so he should have it. And he said he was going to post it, but I haven't seen it. Somewhere there's a massive vault of unreleased episodes between all the different Two True Freaks shows that we do. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But uh, back to the city on the edge of forever. Just going to try and steer us back into this. Um, I, you know, it, it was always lauded as, you know, if not the best, one of the best episodes. And... Uh, then I remember, you know, Hall and Ellison coming out and being, you know, not happy with the way they did it. And probably like 25 years ago, I had gotten a copy of the, they had come out with a uh, a book. And I think if I remember right, the book had the screenplay as filmed and the screenplay as written. They had both versions of it in there. And right. then they had, I don't know if it was an interview with him. Or if he wrote, you know, a little something. But, you know, he, he was very unhappy with how, and I think it was really Gene Roddenberry who did it, uh, that he changed the story a lot. And as you look at this book, which we're going to get to, you can kind of understand why Roddenberry would change it, because it doesn't really fit his image of the way the future should be. Right. You know, Roddenberry well, you know, wanted... wanted well, just quickly, Roddenberry wanted you know the future to be more of a par- you know paradise-like existence, uh, and to you know have things like drug dealers, which is effectively what we have here, uh, you know goes against the way he looked at the way the future should be. So I you know I do understand why he would change it, uh, and we'll get into the book in a little while. But frankly, I thought he changed it for the better. Amen. Amen. Yeah, maybe we're kind of burying the lead on this a little bit, but I, I agree with you. That was my impression. Now, granted, all I've read is this first issue. Um, I, I, this is this is a few years old, right? So all the issues are out for this? Yeah, this like, came out in 2014. Okay, yeah. So all I've read is just this first issue. but um, And I tried to keep an open mind with this, but... That walking away from it, that was ultimately my my impression of it as well. Is that enjoyable as it is, it was just a fun like, it, it was like a fun like mirror universe style episode. But I'm glad that uh, that Roddenberry, you know, or whoever made the decisions that they did because if they'd have gone with this, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't quite fit them all. And I thought a lot about the drug dealer thing. I was like, why does that bother me so much? Because you know, we we did get other episodes like that. You know, in in the classic original, um, one of the very earliest episodes, uh, Mud's Women dealt kind of sort of with drugs because that was the whole thing that was making the women beautiful and, yeah, and like desirable to the mind. And then later in Next Gen, you know, there was the the episode with uh, with uh, uh, what's his name, Buttrick there, uh, Merritt Buttrick. And uh, Joaquin, or whatever the hell his name was from Rapid yes, yes. where they were drug dealers and all that, or, you know, are on drugs or whatever the whole the whole thing was. So I mean, it's definitely a topic. So I was like, why does it bother me so much? And I think what it what it was, and probably what the same thing that bothered uh, Roddenberry, I presume, was that 
in this case, it was actual Starfleet officers that were doing it. And I think that's where the line was crossed right there. I mean, that, it's speculation, of course, but that's what bothered me right out of the gate with this was that not so much that they were dealing with uh, a, a drug addiction and drug dealing and all that, but that it was actually like officers of the flagship, of the Enterprise. It, that, that just seemed like, okay, that's very un-Star Trek-like to me. And so, yeah, I don't know. But I, I, I think I think it's even. I, I agree with that. But I think you could take it even a step further. Uh, that not only is it Star Trek officers, but they're shown as being kind of, you know, really unsavory. Right. Yes. Uh, whereas, like, you know, Mud is kind of a you know a roguish, at least the way he was presented in the original series. You know, a ro- almost a roguish clown. Uh, right. So it, it's it's it, it feels less serious coming from Roger C. Carmel. Right. You know, I mean that that is the bottom line of it. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like you can kind of gloss over it in that one, but in this one, it's it's definitely you know more more dirty. <laughs> what's going on with the drugs? Uh, you know, the criticism I've heard of the change, and this was one of the things that that Harlan Ellison, I. If I if I remember right, one of the things he had criticized was, you know, how how bumbling do they make Leonard McCoy look that he accidentally injects himself with his with his hypodermic needle, right? <laughs> or his hypospray, yeah. I guess it is. But you know, I mean, how, how you know do do you really you know want to say that your ship's doctor is that foolish and and that clumsy? But you know, it, it was it was a means to an end, I thought, and it, it was you know without getting into the drug dealing thing. But uh, maybe we should, you know, we'll, we'll take a look at the issue. Uh, and it's been, to be honest with you, it's been a we we've been holding off on this because of, you know, life getting in the way. So I didn't write a synopsis, and it's been a couple of weeks since I read it. So I'm going to try and bring bring us through it as best as I can. Uh, it's got an interesting cover, don't you think? Uh, yeah, I like the cover. It, I do it, like. The it cover. almost reminds me of like, and I think it's supposed to like the books you used to buy. Do you remember, like, when you were in grade school and they'd have the uh, the thing of books, you know, they'd hand out the pamphlet of books that you'd bring home and you'd try and get your parents to order some of them for you? It almost looks like the cover of, like, a science fiction book, uh, like a science fiction anthology book that would be on that list. Well, it reminds me of, uh, of like, a Twilight Zone episode. It's, you know, it's like... got a Twilight Zone feel from the cover. I think the eye in the middle of it. Yeah. It's what really gives it yeah. that. And then you have the... Uh, let me try and describe it as best as I can. It's it's like a grayish blue and white uh, and some orange. That's really the only colors in it. Uh, and the very center underneath the title uh, is like a clock face. But then in the center of the clock face, we have the shape of the Enterprise as if it's sailing downward. And then in the middle of the saucer section, there's an eyeball. And from the eyeball, there's uh, what looks to be like a projected orange light with a man running. I, I kind of makes me think of the fugitive. Uh, and then yeah. at the foreground behind him running, you know, we see a you know a, a city background, but you know, no no details to the building. And then there's kind of some stars above at the top. So it's there's a lot going on, and and the cover is made to look as if it's all dog-eared and beat up. Yeah. That's a cool element. I like that. You know what it, what it really reminds me of is like if James Blish had written a series of Twilight Zone books in the same style that he did the, the Star Trek books that adapted the episodes. Mm-hmm. That That's kind of what this reminds me of. It, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's Twilight Zone meets Star Trek. It's, it's a really cool cover. Right? It's very eye-catching. That cover is by Juan Ortiz... And then there was an alternate cover, which is much more traditional comic book looking, uh, by Paul Shipper. And it's got Kirk in the center, in the middle, and then kind of on a diagonal going up from uh, left to right. Uh, you have Janice Rand down towards the lower right, lower left, excuse me, the lower left, and you have Spock at the upper right. And there's a bright blue background and... Uh, you know, much, much more of a traditional cover. Yeah, this reminds me of something that you'd see as like a book cover on some of the, the early um, the early novels. Like when I first started getting into Star Trek and they were doing like, uh, 
you know, like the entropy effect in, in books like that. This this looks like one of those covers that you would see on one of those books, like The Wounded Sky or something like that. Yeah, know? I could easily see this on a Star Trek novel. Yeah. So the, cool. uh, the, the story is credited original teleplay by Harlan Ellison, adaptation by Scott Tipton and David Tipton. The art is by J.K. Woodward. Letters by Neil... I need Dr. Bill to tell me how to pronounce Ukulele? this. You <laughs> You Uitaki? That's how I would go with it. And edited by Chris Ryle. So, and then the interior art is, you know, looks to be almost kind of a painted art. It reminds me an awful lot of that issue of um, Terminator Burning Earth that we just did not long ago. Yes. Yeah, actually, yeah, like kind of a, an early Alex Ross yeah. look. And some of it's beautiful. Some of it's a little cloudy and not really my cup of tea, but like the the, the opening shots of the Enterprise, I think, look great. Yeah. So the, the story opens up and it gives you a ship log, star date 31, 3134.6. Our chronometers still run backwards. We have followed the radiation to its planet's source here at the rim of the galaxy, but something else is happening. When we left Earth, each of the 450 crew members of the Enterprise was checked out, stable. But it's been two years, so much stress on them. We have continuous psych probes, but we, have, we, know, excuse me, we know some have been altered, even some who may have gone sour. We can't know until the floor shows up, but by then it's too late, much too late. And we, we come to a, uh, a scene with a dude who's selling these, I guess, psychotropic drugs, they're called jewels of sound, and they're so expensive and so illegal because they're a dream narcotic. And uh, there's a, a guy who is apparently addicted to it. And it seems like if, uh, again, I'm trying to remember everything about it. I think if you take it once, you're addicted to it. End of story. Right. So this guy is, is addicted, and you know he, he's willing to do whatever he has to do to to get it from this guy, from the other, from the salesman. A salesman does not look like a typical Star Trek uh, officer to me, or even, you know, an ensign. He's a little heavy set and older looking. Uh, he he almost looks like like work, a mafia guy. <laughs> it would work better, I think, if he was if he was a red shirt because they did have some security dudes that were big like that. Yeah. But the fact that they're both command is is weird to me. You know, even weirder than the fact that they're Starfleet officers to begin with, you know what I mean? But they're both command officers. That's just I don't know, that's kind of kind of bizarre. Yeah, so he you know, basically he gets him to agree that he's gonna do whatever he wants, and then he gives him the jewel and then there's a scene after he takes it where you could see kind of his you know, it, it, it's like you see four four pictures of his face in one shot, and uh, you know it looks like he's going nuts. But I guess it's giving him some sort of pleasure. And then we cut to uh, the the bridge of the Enterprise, where uh, Mister Spock is uh, questioning him for not running the ship properly, and he gets relieved of duty, and he ends up. I guess yeah, he attacks. No, actually, the the sales guy attacks him, right? Well, he goes, he wanders off after he's been relieved of duty, and he goes straight to the guy that's his supplier and basically tells him, "That's it. This this is the last straw. I'm 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 turning myself in, and I'm reporting you as well." And of course, that guy can't have that. So after the the addicted guy wanders off down the hall, he comes up behind him and clubs him, and I think he kills him. Yeah, he gets him with like a Rubik's cube. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's a, a. I guess it's a, uh, like a bookend, from yeah, the way they show it at the, at yeah. the that first shot in that page. Kind of looks like the cosmic cube on a, um, you know, like made into a paperweight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he. I mean, he he clocks him from behind, and then he's standing over him, ready to clock him again. And I guess that's Uhura who sees him and screams. Um, I don't know. She she looks like she could be Uhura, but I'm not. Was Uhura on the bridge though? Yeah, Uhura was on the bridge. So this this is another woman. Yeah, actually, and her hair is a little different. So yeah, I guess it's not. And then uh, again, the sales guy, the sales guy, the the dealer, he <laughs> runs he runs off. He attacks a red shirt and uh, cracks him in the head. 
and goes to the transporter room. And at this point, the command crew is coming out and coming after him. He's locked himself into a transporter room. And Yeoman Rand is using a uh, phaser gun to try and get the Phaser rifle, yeah. Phaser rifle, like, excuse me. I liked this, because earlier when uh, when the dealer attacked the red shirt, he steals... The, the red shirt is taking a phaser rifle out of a locker. And the guy kind of blindsides him, takes the rifle away, clocks him, and leaves him unconscious. He leaves the rifle behind. And Rand, then when they get there later... Uh, She's using that same rifle that he discarded to try to burn their way into the transporter room. I just thought that was cool because I always thought the phaser rifle was really neat, but we only ever see that, you know, the classic phaser rifle only in where no man man has gone before. Yeah, it's the only time they ever used it. So, so after she uses the rifle on the door, she gets them into the transporter room. But he's, you you could even see in the in the shot as they're running in, you could see the uh, the little display you know the display over the transporter that he's just gone yep and uh he went down and now the shots here like they look pretty good but like kirk looks especially photoshopped to me oh yeah definitely like like they took a, a what you call it a uh a light box and did it like so it's a little too right. much a little too too uh on the nose for me so they uh, they follow him down to the surface of this planet, and uh, it's very red, <laughs> you know. To, <laughs> but then they you know they make their way down, and they they're searching out a source of radiation, which brings them to the mountains. And at that point, uh, Kirk says, "Mr. Spock, do you see the city up there? Do you see it too? It is there, Captain. It's illogical, but it's apparently real, like a city." A city on the edge of forever. And there's a pretty cool shot of them all standing there, and then you see the mountains, and in the back of the mountains you can barely make out, but it looks like there's like a crystal city. Now that part, I'll be honest, that part I thought was kind of cool because I, I, I have always wondered, why was the episode named the way it was? And I always took it that it was it was named that way because of the time travel element, because it, it takes place in New York City and also. So, like, New York City was supposed to be, you know, literally the city on the edge of forever. But even that, I thought, was a little bit, a little weird, you know, it was a bit of a stretch and all that. Whereas this is a little more logical, uh, if you know what I mean. That, you know, that that kind of fanciful element, you know, tying into the name and all that. I I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, I, I never knew what the origin of the name was. I always figured that it was like a quote from some famous work that I was not familiar with. Right. <laughs> you know, something that maybe Shakespeare had said at one time or something, you know. But I, right. I guess, I, you know, I guess it's, this is where uh, Ellison came up with it. It really, I don't know that it has a lot of nexus to the story, though. Wasn't it, wasn't it Shakespeare that wrote, uh, I want to wake up in a city that never sleeps? <laughs> <laughs> find him, find no. him king of the hill? No, no, that was, no, okay. That, that, I was trying to think of somebody else to say it wrote it. I can't even think of anybody funny, so I'll just let that one go. <laughs> yeah, it was William Shakespeare. Well, I mean, number one, King of the King of the Heap. <laughs> that was, it's, it's from Hamlet. <laughs> Alas, poor Frankie. I knew him well. So now this is kind of cool, and I guess this is something that they didn't have the special effects to do on the TV show because they make their way into this city, and then they they meet up with the Guardians of Forever, which isn't just a giant portal. It's you know it, it's the Seven Deadly Sins from Shazam, pretty much. <laughs> Man, that's a, that's a good analogy. They reminded me a little bit too much of the. Uh... Was was it the what was the name of those old farts on uh, on the episode where they they stopped the war between the Klingons and the Federation or were, were they the Mel, Mel, not the Mel-Kosians? no or Organians the Organians. Oh, yes yes that's, yes yes yeah that's what they reminded me of which is an, another you know that was one of their uh, their go to things the same way you know the the, the probe that's going to destroy the galaxy the people who are just so much more infinitely powerful than we are that we you know. That they're, they're godlike to us. It right. is one of, one of Star Trek's go-to themes. 
So they say, uh, since before your sun burned hot in space, before your race was born, only on this world do the million pulse flows of time and space merge. Only here do they flux, do the flux lines of forever meet. Only here can exist the gateway to the past where the time vortex of the ancients can work. Only here. And we set to watch the time vortex so many hundreds of centuries ago that even we do not have clear memories of it. I, I like the idea of setting time up as something that's not necessarily linear. And that's something right. that, that they play with a lot on uh, DS9 when they deal with the, uh, you know, the, the wormhole aliens or the prophets, depending on how you want to uh, call them. But, you know, it, it's hard to conceptualize that. Because even the way time is presented to us when they try to do it like this, you go back in the past and it's going to affect the future, which still creates kind of a linear effect to it. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. If, 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 it's not gonna, if, if it's not linear, then what you do on one thing won't necessarily affect the rest. You know, you're only affecting that one, one thing, but it's, you know, it's still got to be seen as a whole. But anyway, just, you know, I, I don't know if I'm getting too out there in my own head that I'm not even making sense. No, so, you, you make sense, but that that particular theory of time travel has always annoyed the hell out of me because I, I understand the, you know, the... You know the the fun element of thinking of there being you know divergent futures and divergent pasts and everything like that. But I like more the idea of you know time. You know that the, the, there's one timeline. So mm -hmm. you know I, I I've always really enjoyed those time travel stories that. You know, it, 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 there's rip, you know, there's ripple effects that, you know, the least little thing that you affect in the past could have tremendous effects on the future. And I like that. You know, that was yeah, one of the, the things I really effect. liked about, you know, the, the, uh, the aired version of City on the Edge of Forever is that, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, Edith Keeler was not particularly, you know, that important a person, except she was tremendously important, you know? because of you know things later on that that she would be a part of and, and I like that element that you know there was a certain aspect to it that everybody's important um, but that also always used to kind of at the same rate kind of annoy me a little bit because what about the bum you know the bum that vaporizes himself with uh, with McCoy's discarded phaser stolen phaser you know was that guy not important or were there no ripples or or were there ripples, and we just never knew it because those ripples actually played into, you know, the timeline that we were familiar with with the Enterprise. You know, so the, you know you could go crazy thinking about stuff like that. But I always thought it was fun. I always liked, you know, that that kind of idea of time oh, I, travel. I kind of I kind of love time travel stories for exactly that reason. But I don't think there's any of them where you can't start unraveling the logic a little bit at a certain point. And you know. Bill and I were talking the other day, and I think, you know, by the time this airs, it'll be far enough removed from uh, Avengers Endgame's release that I don't think we have to worry about spoilers. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, you may want to skip the next, like, 30 or 40 seconds. Uh, we were saying, that, you know, okay, so Thanos from 2014 came to 2019, or whatever, you know, years that they're playing with. I know they were five years apart, or seven years apart from that, whatever it was. But he came to the future because he got wind of what they were doing, gathering the stones and everything. And then in that future, Tony Stark eventually killed him. Right. So if the 2014 Thanos was killed, then who in who in uh, Infinity War is getting the, the gems and, and doing what he does? Because he was killed already. Right. So, you know, like the logic just starts to fall apart. It collapses in on itself at some point when you do these time travel stories. Yeah. So, Absolutely. I mean, and, and, and it's almost inevitable. I mean, if you think hard enough, virtually any time travel story, you can come up with some sort of time travel paradox. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, that's part of the fun, honestly, I, I think. So I don't, it doesn't really bother me so much as I'm always trying to figure out, well, how do you get around that? You know, how do you explain that away? How do you no-prize it? 
we could we could do a whole show on you know time travel things like that because uh, there's some from Back to the Future that to me are, to this day are, are doozies. <laughs> you know? But I, I don't want to I don't want to divert us for, you know down that path. We'll we'll save that for a for a topic for another show. Sure. So uh, as Kirk and Spock are talking to the Guardians of Forever, uh, the drug dealer guy is in the background watching them, and they uh, they go on with their discussion, and Kirk is finding out it's possible to go backwards and forwards in time. Spock asks for a demonstration, show us the past, they say they can do it. And then, kind of through the portal, they see the Age of Dinosaurs. They see, I guess it's, I don't know if it's the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, but they see, <laughs> you know, old-time ships. Then, right. you, then you see cars, which look to be about the time of Edith Keeler. Right. And the conversation goes on. And we have a, a double-page spread, which is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven panels. But this is really nice artwork. I feel like in this. And again, it's probably a lot of, yeah. uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of, what you call it, a uh, light box work and things like that. Yeah. But it's still photo reference. Yeah. The only one that looks kind of bad to me is if you go one over from the from the right. Uh, there's a shot. You know, Kirk has his hand on his uh, chin. And then Spock is kind of next to him, and it looks like the lines that separate the two of them and all don't look natural. Right. So that to me looks almost like, you know, like they just took photographs and cut them and put them in there and then just kind of painted over them to make them look like they were drawn. Well, I, I kind of had that feel anyway. I've I haven't read any of them yet, but I've thumbed through. Uh, a number of those John Byrne ones that he's doing where they're kind of like photo novels, but he's creating new stories mm -hmm. using, you know, photos. And I definitely got that feel from this. Even though it is painted, I still got that same feel of kind of the cut and paste of old pictures, you know, from episodes put together to create a new narrative. This, this still has that feel. I, I don't think it could really escape it. Because yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I think I think it's definitely got that, and I still think there's areas where it looks good. I think this this double page looks good, and uh, largely because I really like the color scheme with the guardians, and with the contrast of the uniforms of Kirk and Spock and the drug guy. Right. The way the way they they stand out against it, I I kind of like just that general appearance. Uh, but you know there is there is still that that photoshop feeling that takes away from it a little bit right so they're going on and on and on about time travel and uh what is spock says captain i understand now why we can breathe here and why our chronometers turned backwards and it's they've they've created a, an, an area of no time here within the sphere influence of the vortex time does not move all through the rest of the universe, it flows at a normal rate. But here, they control time. How much simpler it is must be for them to control the atmosphere. So they're going on and on about something that's almost, almost unimportant there. Right? Yeah, it's it's kind of inconsequential. Yeah, a lot of lot of dialogue in yes. uh, unnecessarily dialogue in this. So then the drug dealer, and I now I see his name again as Beckworth. He bursts out. He, he he actually gets by Spock. It's it's weird. Well, actually, because Spock gives Spock him gives him a whack and knocks him down. But then the next shot is him laying out Spock with a right. with a right hook. <laughs> then he grabs Janice Rand, a, who gets away from him. He is a big beefy dude too. He really is. Yeah, and then he goes running, and he jumps through the Guardians of Forever. As Kirk tries to phaser him, and then Janice Rand says, he's he's gone. And it says, to be continued. It's funny, because we, we had a conversation on Listen to the Prophets about phasers set based on the weight of the person. <laughs> set, your right. set your phaser on fat. Beckworth is coming. <laughs> <laughs> set phasers to fat ass. <laughs> it's... <laughs> it's a, 
there was, there was one, like, I don't remember what it was, but there was something that was like, oh, I'm sorry, I had my faces set on skinny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it's, a, it's so different from the original version. And a lot of it is, to me, is this is only set up for the ultimate story that, you know, we have the Kirk love story and all of that. I don't really see... This, so much of this seems extraneous and unnecessary, is what it comes down to. Yeah. And yes, it is clumsy for Dr. McCoy to inject himself with his hypo spray, but it's, it's a means to an end, and it gets us to this, this point faster, because we don't really need this, because this is, this is, you know, the whole Guardians of Forever thing, again, is it's a means to an end. They just want to create that... that situation so that we can get into the time travel aspect of it and and the butterfly effect i don't know i mean is it really i mean i I guess i never really thought about it before i mean does it make mccoy look foolish or something because i mean you know the ship's bucking all over the place and everything i mean it's not like he's just like like stupid clumsy and and accidentally i mean that you know it's you know the ship's rocking and being hit by the time displacement you know whatever it is the time waves or whatever so I don't know I never really thought about it what do you think yeah I, I think it's I think it's a little out of character I think he's a better doctor than that and would have his he he would have things under control a little better even even in a bucking ship he he wouldn't be in a position to inject himself right he, he you know i mean he may not get things exactly where he wants but but actually injecting it into himself just seems a little extreme okay <laughs> so you know i i kind of agree with that but it doesn't it never really bothered me i, I don't feel like it's you know so weird that it, that it ruins the story in any way so but it it seemed to really bother ellison and and I, I think it might have less to do with the fact that that scene is objectionable to him than it does to the fact that they just kind of shit right. can they shit canned his whole story up to that point. But you know the bottom line is, as I understand it, is Gene Roddenberry was not going to present it with a with a Federation drug dealer. Well, let's talk about that. I want to talk a little bit about Harlan Ellison. What what is your impression of Harlan Ellison? I think he was a very creative man with a chip on his shoulder who was angry at the world. Okay, that's not that's not too far off from me then. So I, I you know, with all apologies to uh, our mutual friend Chris Honeywell, I've never been a fan of the guy. I mean, I respect him for you know for you know uh, he had a very you know good imagination. He came up with some really good stories. I mean, he came up with. You know the the original story of this that became you know the the classic Star Trek episode that it is and everything and you know and other things like that. But for me, the the thing that ever kept kept me from really you know following him or, or being a fan or anything is you know there's you know there's the there's the curmudgeon that you can love because yes they're 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 grumpy yes they're you know a sourpuss or whatever. But they're still lovable, you know, in a, in a certain fun kind of, you know, grumpy old man, you know, get off my lawn kind of way. And then there's just the miserable, rotten old son of a bitch. And that's what it always seemed to me that he was, because everything I ever saw the guy in, it was just him just being a grumpy old bastard, just always pissing and moaning about stuff or pissing on things and... So it really made it hard for me to, to like or, or really appreciate him, probably at a level that he may have actually deserved even more than, than what I did, you know? Mm-hmm. Just because he just seemed like he was just such an unlikable cuss, you know what I mean? So I don't know, am I, am I wrong in that? or I don't think you are. <laughs> I, I, would like to, I would like to be more generous to him, but every time I ever saw him, he was always complaining. <laughs> I never saw him... Yeah, be magnanimous to anybody, or you know, to to seem to be nice. He just seemed like he was miserable. Yeah, I he never was... saw him at a convention. Right. I do think he made his way to conventions, but I never saw him at one, so I can't speak to what he was like if you met him. Right. But again, I, I do... I've heard stories about that too. I've I've heard that he was not particularly pleasant to his fans and stuff. Oh, now that of course you know that's completely you know 
you know, secondhand hearsay and all that, so it could be dead wrong, but I have heard that, that, uh, you know, he wasn't even particularly pleasant to the people that came to meet him that professed to be, you know, his, his audience, his people, so I don't know. But yeah, he just, that was always the impression I had of him, was just miserable, you know, and he just... I remember ever seeing the guy say nice things or, or smile or any, you know, he just seemed like he was perpetually pissed off at the world, you know, so I don't know. So it, it made it, it made it not particularly, you know, easy for me to, to sympathize with his plight because I don't know. I've always been happy with you know, the version that I knew of this, but I was still curious, you know, to dive into this and see, okay, this is his thing that he's all pissed off about. Let's see what's going on here. And, and having, you know, again, we're just getting a small piece of the story here. What, what did this go on? Six issues? I think it was six issues, yeah. So we're just, we, yeah, we're just getting the setup here, really. Yeah. But from what little I, I've got of it here, it's, I don't know, frankly, I don't think it's as good. And, and I, I really don't think that I'm using just, you know, rose-colored glasses or my love of the aired episode to say that i mean giving this a fair shake i i just i frankly i just don't think it's as good um yeah i think i think that they took a very good concept and made it more presentable yeah well they, they, they didn't change the concept they didn't improve the concept because that stays the same it really right. is the time travel story with the butterfly effect and all of that and you know the love story all of that remains it's really the framework of it that they changed right well what this reminds me of i I think it's i think it's very you know very apt that at the beginning of this when we were looking at that that alternate cover you know that the painted alternate cover with uh, kirk spock and janice ran you know talking about you know those early novels and everything that's a lot of what this reminds me of is is looking at this and I think a lot of Star Trek stories, especially, you know, latter-day Star Trek stories. Now, granted, this isn't a latter-day one. This was written, you know, to be an, an episode of the show. But still... In season one, too. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of the... Especially, like, the, the, the Star Trek novels and, and sometimes the comics, you know, that were set during the five-year mission in particular, I think a lot of them always suffered from this this thing where because they were now writing a story um, as opposed to coming up with something for television where they were going to be under a very tight budgetary constraint that they created a lot of stories that were a bit fanciful for Star Trek because that was one of the things, believe it or not, that I always actually kind of liked about Star Trek and you know later on we would see that with star wars too especially in the very first star wars movie is that you know because there was a a, a budget to operate in and because of you know special effects limitations of the day and everything you couldn't just literally throw anything that you could imagine up on the screen so you had to work it within both the budgetary and special effects limitations of the day and I think that, honestly, is part of that secret recipe of what makes the classic Star Trek work, is that because, you know, to to use the analogy of, you know, because the shark didn't always work, then you had to go with more story, and you had to really flesh out characters and and motivations and and really concentrate on story more than, you know, making a, a wowing special effects piece. And I think that really is why so much of classic Trek works, and I, I think it's the same reason why the original Star Wars worked so well, or even Jaws works so well, because, you know, that that thing that, that people think that it was wasn't really what it was, because they the special effects really weren't there, so it, it had to be story. I don't know, does that make sense? But, yeah, but, it, it makes sense. Uh, I think sometimes people use that as a little bit of a crutch, and I don't think the examples you're giving are the cases where that occurs. But uh, I just go back to where we came up with the uh, where we came up with the expression "Is it yours?" Uh, was right. in, in the uh, the more recent Godzilla movie uh, when I, I think it was Luke and I got into a little debate, and because I was complaining because they showed so little of the Godzilla during the movie, right. and Luke tried to compare it to Jaws, saying, "Oh, it's like the shark in, in Jaws." 
and I, I took I took uh, exception to that, uh, and I and I feel like you know that that's you know Jaws is an example where they had the you know the problems with the technical difficulties and they overcame them by making things so well laid out and and suspenseful at points where you didn't need to see it because your imagination took over and i think that's what you're describing as well in those instances uh but as as a writer you or as a director in particular you need to frame things and pace things and edit things to develop that imagination and to like you say make you feel like you saw things that you may not have actually even seen right uh but just to say, yeah, I'm just not going to show the, the the creature much, you know. No, that doesn't. That's not how you do it. <laughs> but you know, that's like I said. I, I I just think, you know, it's it's a matter of rising above those budgetary or technical limitations. It's not a matter matter of using them as an excuse for not doing more. Right. So. I just I, the the reason I think of that that you know, what, what really spurred me to say that was that once they're down on the planet in this, I can't help but look a lot at a lot of this and go, yeah, this this wouldn't have ever materialized on TV. It you know it, they may have tried, but it wouldn't look how it looks here because I, I found this jarring because when you start the story. You know, everything that we're seeing looks like something you could see in a classic Star Trek episode. It almost looks like a photo novel, because I, I could see this being frames from an episode. Maybe not the part where the guy has the drug flip out that transitions into him on the bridge. That That's a little bit weird. I can't quite see that in 60s television. But everything else pretty much looks like it, it could be a photo novel. But then you get down to the planet. And when they actually walk into the very, like, crystal krypton, it's like a cross between, like, the crystal krypton from Superman the movie and, like, the ruined city from, like, beneath the planet of the apes. It's, it's like a cross mm -hmm. between the two of them. And I just, you know, with, with, with Star Trek the way it was, in, especially, like, in the first couple of seasons, I just, I can't visualize this having actually come off the way it looks here well the city the city on the edge of forever scene when they're so far from it that they would have done with a matte painting there's no question right. that that's how they would have tried to do it and and it would it would have succeeded or failed based on the quality of the matte painting painting right. excuse me uh but once they got into the uh once they got into the city i think we would have seen kind of the backgrounds we saw in what little girls are made of Right, it just maybe a little bit more brightly lit, and I don't think that would have gone well. I don't think it would have. I don't think it would have captured the mood that they're trying to create here. Right. So, yeah, I, I do tend to agree with you that the the you know the the story exceeds their technical capabilities at the time. Right. And and you know I mean you could even see it based on you know the Guardians of Forever, you know instead of. Uh, what we saw here, they just gave us a big portal that talked to them. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, that's that. And that's one of those things that, you know, that eventually soured me on, on reading Star Trek novels that were set within the five year mission is that when, when I can't visualize them as part of the TV show, they lose me. I, and I don't know if that's a fair criticism or not, but it's just true. You know, if if they're coming up with concepts that are so fanciful and so far out there, I mean, I understand the temptation to do that because when you're writing, I mean, you're writing a book, you can visualize whatever the hell you want to. You have no budgetary restraints. You know, that's that's probably the appeal for a lot of authors, you know, to, to write stories like that set in these different worlds because... You know, you don't have anybody telling you, well, you know, we don't have the budget for this monster or this, but you know, the budget for fifteen rock monsters or whatever. You know, you can you can create as many rock monsters as you want to because there is no budget. But uh, you know, I'm just saying, for me as a fan of this show, if I can't see it being an actual episode, you know, being 
on the television, then it somehow just doesn't work for me. I, I don't I don't know if that's logical, but that's just how my brain works. And so that's why, you know, beyond the drug dealer thing and all that, that's where this kind of lost me right in this first uh, first issue here is that I just, I look at a lot of this and go, I like the decisions that they went with, with this. I can understand why they went the direction that they went with the aired episode because I can't see this. You know what I, I don't know. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, no, it does. It, 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 it definitely does. I can see exactly what you're talking about. I could see, again, I can see in my mind how they would have done this. Um, and again, it, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be as fancy looking as what we got here. Uh, but I, 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 to me, it fails less because I, I, don't, I don't think I have the same problem as you. I'm willing to accept you know, things that they couldn't do on the screen uh, because they don't have the same financial or technical limitations. But I just think the story that they came up with is better. Right. That's really yeah. really what it comes down to for me. I just think I think this whole Beckworth, the drug dealer thing, is, is just unnecessary. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it, it does... I, I sometimes scoff at Gene Roddenberry's desire to create this idyllic world... Because in an idyllic world, you don't have conflict. And if you don't have conflict, what's the point in telling these stories? So, you know, I, 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 again, you know, like I said, I tend to scoff at it a little bit. But he created a world where there were improvements in the way people behaved. Just to, to, you know, give it a, a very basic description. And he didn't want to see that paradigm drastically changed and i you know i go back and forth on it because sometimes you know there, there are areas in in deep space nine where they do show a little bit of the the, the dirty underside of things uh and i'm okay with that so you know I, I i guess maybe i'm being a little hypocritical but to have this guy on the ship actually dealing these jewels just seems to be a, to be a bridge too far for me right so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of with Roddenberry on him saying, no, I don't want to portray it this way. And, and changing the story to eliminate that aspect of it, which really was not even necessary to the story. Because, again, this is just the framework to get them back into the 1930s so that they can tell the story that they want to tell. You know, this may be completely unfair, but it occurs to me that... It is entirely possible that Ellison did that purposely just to be a dick. You know what I mean? Because he strikes me as that kind of person. <laughs> that that he intentionally did this just to see, you know, could he get a rise out of Roddenberry or could he get it past him or something like that. Maybe knowing full well that it wasn't going to fly and then when Roddenberry changed it then it just gives him something to bitch about because that seems like what he enjoyed doing best with his life was bitching about things I don't know is that is that but completely it, fair but it, it definitely occurs to me you know I, I think it must you know I mean Harlan Ellison's gone so I don't want to speak in, in the present tense of him but I think it must have burned his ass that they changed it and again it is frequently considered one of the best if not the best episode right despite the fact that they changed it that he thinks they they changed it for the worse which clearly based on the reception the episode got uh i don't think it the reception would have been as good if they had done it the way he wanted them to and that must burn must have burned him i think that really left him very bitter have you read the rest of this i read the original screenplay probably between 15 and 20 years ago. So I, I was familiar with it, but it's been a long, long time, and I don't really remember. I don't think, again, I don't think there's any drastic changes once they get down to Earth. But Right. But, I, you know, I, 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 I'm, again, working on a very old memory here, so I could be wrong. I think this is where the major changes were, just in, in the framework. But I would have to read the rest of this... Uh, and I'd like to actually. I'd like to sit down and read the rest of it, uh, and and see where it goes from here, and if there are more changes. I'm thinking there there have to be more. Otherwise, what's the point in producing this series? You know, this mini series that they came out with. If the rest of it is just a pure adaptation of what we got already, 
that seems kind of a waste of time. So there's got to be um, other changes yes, that I don't recall. I mean, it's, if it never had been adapted to comics, which I don't think it has, then, you know. It's, 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 it reminds me of when they came out with, and I didn't read it because I heard so many negative things about it, but when they came out with uh, The Star Wars, which is the adaptation of the original screenplay that George Lucas wrote. Right. And I heard so many negative things about it, I didn't want to read it. If, if it's as bad as they say, then what, what am I gaining by wasting my time with it? <laughs> right. And, and if it's, you know, if they had said, oh, this would have been a viable, you know, alternative, they, you know, they did it differently, but this would have been just as good in its own way, you know, I'd read that in a heartbeat. But when they say, yeah, this, this, this is the original ideas he had before he, you know, cleaned it up and made it better, and it kind of sucked. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't need to read that. <laughs> that. That's just a curiosity to me, and I, I can get by without it. But, yeah, I, I do think I'm going to sit down and, and seek out the rest of these issues and, and read this through again, because I don't think I have the book with the original screenplay anymore, and I think I'd rather read it in this form since I had already read it in that form years ago anyway. Do you have any interest in reading well, the rest of this, or are you letting it go after this? I've got to be honest, I, I really I really do not. I, I only read this because, well, for one, you know, it came up for the show, but also, you know, I, I just out of curiosity to see... You know, it's something I'd always heard about. It was something I was mildly interested to check out. Now, having checked out this portion of it, I, I really honestly don't feel the need to, to go any further with this. I, I think I've got all the evidence that I need right here that um, it was a change for the better. Sorry, uh, Harlan Ellison, but, you know, I, I just I, I think that the decisions that were made in the episode that we got is a superior product, you know, based on you know, this sampling of the of the original thing, so... Well, when I read the rest of it, I'll... If, if I do think it's worth your while to read it, I'll I'll point it out to you, but otherwise... <laughs> if it isn't, you know, we'll just let it go by the wayside. Okay. I don't, I don't, I don't feel the need... I think we've gone in-depth enough. I don't feel the need to necessarily rate this unless you want to. Totally up to you. Yeah, I think we could just let it go with that at this point. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess... Well, I will say I, I really enjoyed the cover. I, I really thought, you know, it's a solid cover. It's very eye-catching. It's it's really cool. I, I really enjoy the cover quite a bit. I, I think it really works in that, you know, I know we've said several times, you know, Twilight zone kind of way, but it really works in that, um, you know, that way of grabbing you as a as kind of a, an, an alternate tale type of thing. Uh, it is a very intriguing cover. I really do like that. And I don't hate the interior art. It's just I, I question the choice of doing the art quite this way um, because it, it it really vacillates wildly between looking very slick and polished and incredibly amateurish because there's portions of it that look, you know, almost photorealistic to the point of being a photo novel and then, you know, alternately either on, a, on the, you know, another page or sometimes panel to panel then it'll look like uh, it looks like Terminator Burning Earth, which was, you know, despite the fact that it was Alex Ross, there's portions of that that look incredibly amateurish. You know, because, it, you know, the guy was an amateur. He was just starting out. So I, I found the interior art style just kind of kind of weird in that aspect. And, uh, you know, flipping back through this again as you were summarizing it, it occurs to me that one of my complaints that I had about it was about Spock and the fact that Spock constantly ages and de-ages throughout the story because of the reference that they're using. But I just noticed that it does the same thing with Kirk. It's not quite as noticeable with Kirk, but if you linger over it and really pay attention, it does happen quite a bit where he goes from being like, you know, first season Kirk to third season Kirk and back again. Mm. It definitely does that with Spock. And there's even some reference with Spock that I think is from the movies. So, yeah, I thought I thought that was a bit jarring. Um, specifically, that, that page you were talking about, the big spread with the, what is it, like seven panels or whatever? Yeah. There's Spock from several different time periods all on one page right there. And it's it's very jarring. So yeah, I wasn't I wasn't nuts about the art. I, I like what they were going for. I'm just not sure I thought it worked. But yeah, that's about all I really had. It was it was interesting. I am glad that uh, that you brought it to the show because it, it was an interesting, 
you know, thing to check out. All right. Yeah, I agree with everything that you said, and uh, I think we'll leave the novel, the city on the edge of forever, there. But uh, what I just want to do before we sign out is I just want to throw out a call to the listeners, and let me start off by saying. Rusty and Kirk, we love the fact that you write in and you tell us stuff and you tell us what you're thinking, and we really do appreciate your opinions. Uh, and keep on giving them to us because we appreciate them. But I want to put out the call to other listeners that we don't hear from, people who maybe used to write in and don't anymore, people who listen and have never felt the need to write in. Let us know what you're thinking. We're kind of curious as to where the show's going as far as listenership, uh, what people enjoy, what people don't enjoy. You know, we, we, we're always trying to do our best to, to make this an entertaining show uh, on both ends, for people who are listening to it and for us to actually do it. Uh, I've, I've always been a big proponent of the thought that uh, it's fun to watch, listen, or whatever, to people who are having fun doing what they're doing. So we want to enjoy what we're doing, but we also want to do that presenting something that we think you'll enjoy. So, you know, let us know what you're thinking. Uh, you know, give us give us some feedback on the shows and uh, let us know where you are. And that's about it. That's about yes. all I got to say. Yes, please. We would appreciate that. And uh, that'll do it for this week, and uh, we'll see you all next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Darn, that's the end.